Talk Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Manchester, Maine. Brought to you today, locally, statewide, and worldwide on the Talk Shoe Radio Network. Today is March 2nd, 2018, and we have freezing rain. The temperature is 29 degrees, it's drizzly rain, and the icicles are dripping off the trees. It is slippery, it is super slick. There's no traffic going by the house. I went out to breakfast, met some people, and came back. And when I, I backed up so that my door opened onto the steps. I could step out of the vehicle and grab the handrail to go up the steps into the house. It is slick, slick. One of the most common injuries is slips and falls, so I don't want to do that. It is slippery. Icicles dripping off the telephone wires. I don't know what the forecast is, but right now it's 29 degrees and raining. So, talked a while back about the renewable fuel standards, and we can now buy regular gas in Maine. By regular, I don't mean the low grade. I mean genuine gasoline, uncontaminated with ethanol. Go up to the pump, fill the vehicle. I have carry two five-gallon gas cans in the back and fill them up and go in the store and take my credit card, no questions asked. Real, genuine gasoline. It's a wonderful thing. Your snowmobile starts on the first pole or the second pole, same with the chainsaw. It'll start on the first or second pole. It wants to burn. It's combustible stuff. Unlike this this uh, ethanol. Ethanol likes water. If a molecule of water vapor touches the ethanol, it, ethanol gloms right onto it. And gradually, I uh, had a big controversy about it in the state of Maine. They wanted, to, they wanted to be able to sell regular gas to people that are having their equipment destroyed by ethanol. Outboard motors, chainsaws, generators. You know, when you need a generator, this, this is one of those days when people may need generators. Thankfully, there's no wind. I mean, it's calm right now. There goes the state truck. Standard. The, uh, if it was windy, this would be bad. Trees would be coming down on the wires, power loss. We're still at risk of having a power loss. But it's dead calm. This, this rain is coming straight down. It's a, it's a drizzle. And uh, the roads, there goes the car. The roads are treacherous. All right. Gasoline. Ted Cruz, I was a big fan of Ted Cruz when he was running for president and uh, didn't make it. And they were going to slander the guy. I mean, they were really ready for him. He's a conservative. And Donald Trump uh, was not known as a conservative. He's a businessman. He's been a very successful businessman. He developed lots of different properties. A couple of the properties didn't work out, and 
they weren't able to make it, and that particular LLC went bankrupt. And the property got auctioned off, and he lost his money on that one. But they said, well, Trump's been bankrupt. Donald Trump owned a company that didn't make it. Most of his companies are very successful, very profitable. But, you know, once in a while you make an investment in something, a businessman, that it just doesn't fit the market, doesn't work out. Regulations handicap the guy from doing what he wanted to do, and they lose it. It happens. Bankruptcy is is a terrible thing for the person that experiences that, but it's not the end of the world. So, I'm going to read this. I don't do a lot of reading on the show, but this is really pertinent. Imagine a Texas senator speaking to an audience of Pennsylvania union workers about a mandate designed to help the farmers in the Midwest. It instead empowered Washington and enriched Wall Street speculators. It sounds like the start of a bad joke, just about how out of touch a bureaucratic state has become, but instead it was the setting of a very important discussion that impacts tens of thousands of American jobs. Speaking to a crowd of over a thousand refinery workers in Pennsylvania, Ted highlighted the need for dramatic reform to the Renewable Fuel Standards, RFS, this week. This is two weeks ago now. His comments focused on Renewable Identification Number, credits, RAN, and the onerous financial burden they create. When calling for reform, Ted reminded everyone that RINs are little more than a made-up government license issued by the EPA. This is true. You know, Congress, you know, tries to do the right thing for the most part. And they write a new law, and it makes them feel good that they wrote this law. Then they hand the new law to the bureaucrats in these various federal agencies and bureaus. And they write all kinds of crazy regulations that really hurt people. And the bureaucrats do this, and Congress didn't pass that. No, 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 that's not not what we intended. Well, that's what they did. So pointing out that the original intentions was to help farmers, here's the crazy thing. The money from the RIN credits doesn't go to the corn farmers. Not only does the money not go to the corn farmers, the money doesn't go to the government. Ultimately, those who are reaping the windfall are Wall Street speculators. The price of RINs has grown to the point that the Pennsylvania refinery, where the event was held recently, filed for bankruptcy. The final burden burden of purchasing RINs, which are renewable identification numbers, was specifically cited as an underlying cause in the bankruptcy filing. So here's a refinery that's been there for 100 years. Quaker State oil is is named for the Quaker State. Pennsylvania was the Quaker State, settled by Quakers. And Thomas people from Germany, they came here to because they wanted to be free people and have opportunities to succeed. 
And when they discovered oil in western Pennsylvania, they opened a refinery. And they started making Quaker State oil. Penn's oil. William Penn. Pennsylvania was settled by William Penn. And they named another refinery Penn's oil. Pennsylvania oil. That's where the names came from. So the price of RINs, renewable identification numbers, have grown to the point that Pennsylvania refinery declared that's one of the reasons that they're going bankrupt. They can't make money. The increasing burden, excuse me, the increasing burden created by the skyrocketing price of renewable uh, numbers is being felt all over the country. Here in Texas, where this article was written, Governor Abbott recognized the need to offer relief and petitioned the EPA at the end of last year, 2017, for a waiver. In his letter, the governor specifically pointed out to RINs as a restrictive federal mandate that poses a threat to the economy of Texas. The request was denied by the bureaucrats, not by Congress, okay? The request was denied, and the heavy burden of the regulation continues. Thanks to Ted Cruz's tenacity and dedication to the working men and women of Texas, the issue remains a topic of discussion in Washington. As has been the case from the beginning, Ted Cruz will continue to look look for a win-win outcome that probably won't be popular with the Wall Street speculators, but that will benefit the corn farmers and blue-collar workers alike. A hundred years ago, the Democrat Party wanted to represent the unions, and they wanted to represent the farmers. And there was a big conflict there as to who was going to benefit the most. And they had the lots of small splinter parties that broke off to represent farmers. And it's an interesting period in our country. And this article was written by by Brian English, a senior advisor, Ted Cruz for Senate. So this thing is, this was an article to inform the public, but also to to advocate for Ted Cruz, who is, again, running for Senate. Good guy. He's one of the Liberty Caucus down there. And he's a conservative. And there are, there are some real conservatives down there in Washington. But they're certainly a minority. I don't think he probably gets... Probably doesn't get along all that well with Susan Collins. So, this, I find it personally to be very satisfying to be able to buy real gasoline. Pull up to the pump, and three or four years ago, you pull up to the pump, and you had to swear on a stack of Bibles and sign an affidavit that you weren't going to put this gasoline into your motor vehicle. You're going to put it in a chainsaw or generator, weed eater, something, outboard motor, but you're not going to put it in an automobile or a truck. People would go dump it in their automobile or their truck. In the wintertime, it starts better. It's much better fuel. It's, it's not bad for your vehicle. The cost of the cost of running this stuff in our vehicles is a very, very high cost for people in business. You've got somebody that runs the landscaping business, okay? 
he's got he's got a little all kinds of power tools, you know, brooms and brush saws and chainsaws and all kinds of stuff. And maintenance is terrible on these things if you're running contaminated fuel. It's a huge expense and, and downtime. And you're paying these employees to try to operate a piece of equipment that doesn't work. He's got to take it into the shop or fix it themselves. Meanwhile, he's not mowing the lawn, trimming the hedge, or whatever he's doing. It's a huge burden. It's an economic penalty that we're doing in a vain effort to control the climate. We don't control the climate at all. Global warming is caused by the sun. Global cooling is caused by the sun. And we don't influence it. Carbon dioxide is tree food. When you when a maple seed helicopters down to the ground, you see them spinning as they go down through. And the maple tree thinks, you don't really think, but seeds get propagated by various ways. And ideally, uh, the seed falls far from the, from the tree so that other little trees will grow up in a place where there's more sunshine because the big maple tree, of course, is blocking the sun from the ground directly under it. So the maple seed helicopters down and blows off in the wind. Oak tree, the acorn falls off the oak tree and goes kaplunk directly under the oak tree. It doesn't get propagated by the wind. No matter how hard the wind blows, the acorn's not going to go very far. But the squirrels grab the, grab the acorn and they run off with it and they bury it hoping the other squirrels don't find it. He remembers, those squirrels remember where those seeds are, the acorns. And they plant them just barely under the surface so they're hidden from the other squirrels. And the oak tree sprouts away from the parent tree. Popple, poplar seeds, you see poplar seeds in the springtime. First thing that come on a, on a poplar tree is the seeds. And we call it poplar cotton because these seeds are like a tumbleweed or like, like milkweed. You know, a gust of wind will take a milkweed seed and blow it quite a ways. And you see these poplar seeds carried by the wind. Hello? Some, somebody broke in there for a second. Or it was an echo, one or the other. Anyway. Poplar seeds get carried long distances, and one of the two the two trees that come up first after a fire or a clear cut are poplar and beech in the state of Maine, a few gray birch. And then once they get going, then the, then the spruce and the fir and the pines come, and they grow fast and straight coming up through the poplar and in the beech. So. We're starting to make some dents in these regulations. Some of these federal agencies are losing people from their from their agencies. You know, they're, they're cutting back on, on spending all this money. That doesn't doesn't help anybody. It's just it's a, just a growing bureaucracy that feeds itself. And the Department of Environmental Protection isn't about environmental protection. It's about 
control and regulation of what people do on their own property. Everybody wants clean air and clean water. That is not an issue. There's nobody that wants to pollute the stream. Years ago, over 100 years ago, we'd have a tannery in Maine, and they would tan hides. And Maine was very much an agricultural economy. And we had dairy farms. And there's one place where I, where I used to hunt, not so much anymore, but a place where I hunted, and it was all stone walls all through the woods. And I thought, geez, you know, what did they have here? And so oh, this was, they had, they were dairy farms. And the population then was very low in the area. I said, how the heck did they carry the milk to market, especially in the wintertime? Oh, they didn't. What do you mean? They made cheese. Maine was the biggest cheese-making state in the nation. Long before Wisconsin became the leading cheese-making state. But Maine was the biggest cheese-making state. And what they did with the... With the uh, and they also, they also made butter and stored it. But they... Uh, and the, the milk... Uh, it was left over when they made the cheese, was fed to the hogs. So Maine was the, the, the king of ham and cheese sandwich. <laughs> you know, we had, we had smoked ham from, from Maine, and, you know, Virginia sugar-cured hams uh, are famous. You know, they were supposed to be the best hams. Maine was, was the best, you know, 100 years ago or more. And the hides were all saved, and they had, you know, ladies' gloves were made out of pigskin. You know, very thin gloves and stylish, and you, you, know, you grab something cold, and, you know, you protect it. And that, they weren't really more, you know, more of a style uh, accessory. So they had pigskin, they had sheepskin, and they had, of course, uh, cow leather, and uh, we had tanneries. And when they tan a bunch of hides, they would simply dump the dump the uh, the tanning acids and liquids in the brook. And there were no trout in that brook, all the way down to the river. Eventually, it got diluted. I went to a uh, I went to uh, a lecture in Florida when I was in getting another degree down there, and uh, the president of Gulf Power gave a lecture. They were carrying coal from up north, Ohio and places, and they had the Tennessee Tom Big Big Canal that went all the way from. Tennessee to the Gulf of Mexico, a man-made canal. It would go from river to river, and they carried coal down all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Between Pensacola and Milton, Florida, there was a huge power plant that was owned by Gulf Power. Gulf Power had power plants all the way around the Gulf, all the way from uh, down near near uh, St. Petersburg, down St. Pete all the way up around the Gulf to Mobile, and then 
on Mobile, in Alabama, Louisiana, Texas. When you get over there, more oil fired. But Gulf Power in Pensacola was a coal-fired plant. Great big piles of coal. Just run them in the boiler. It, back, this is back in 1972. And at that time, they were starting to clamp down on on uh, emissions from power plants. And they were going to go nuclear. So we're going to have any emissions. All, everything was going to be nuclear. Then they went to war against nuclear. The environmentalists don't want any efficient energy production whatsoever. They were against it. They, they, their ultimate goal, as they stake, is no human use of natural resources. They want us to be, their goal for us is the same as the goal for ISIS. They want us to go back to a feudal society like they had in the year 700 and uh, be hunter-gatherers. That's it. That's what they want. And they say this in their literature. I've got documented copies of it. So we polluted the brooks with tannic acid. And and some of the, uh, they had bark tanned leather, and they'd gather hemlocks, and they'd, they would have piles of wood in the woods where they'd simply stripped off stripped the bark off because the bark was worth more than the logs. And there's still places in Maine we can find these piles of logs. And I said, gee, what'd they do? Get buried in the snow and forget to bring them out? No. They didn't want the logs. They wanted the, the bark. And they had bark tanned leather. And the tannic, and the reason some of the brooks you see are kind of, they look like tea, that's tannic acid. It's a natural thing. It contains dioxin. Dioxin is a natural byproduct of rotting wood. And they had a big panic over dioxin. There's dioxin in the water. Well, it's a chemical. It's a natural byproduct of rotting trees. When a tree dies in the woods and falls down, it lays on the ground and it rots. It goes back to the earth. And the part of the leech ate that leaches out of the rotting tree is is this uh, is dioxin chemical. They, they sampled the Penobscot River above Millinocket. And they found that the water coming out of the mill, below the mill, the river below the mill, had less dioxin than the river above the mill. And they could blame in the paper mills for creating dioxin. Mother Nature, or the good Lord, creates dioxin. It's part of a natural process. And they had this huge propaganda crusade against dioxin. There's dioxin coming out of that mill. Well, yeah, there's more of it going in the mill. The mill actually take out dioxin. Well, if that's true, where did dioxin go? It's in the paper. When they evaporate it, it stays with the paper. It goes with the paper, it gets rolled up, and when you pick up a sheet of newspaper in your hand, there's dioxin in that paper. There's dioxin everywhere that there's wood fiber. But you, you tell the truth, and the environmentalists call you a bigot. Just tell the truth. 
They're very, very skilled at propaganda. So, we polluted a lot of rivers. You could drive downstream of a, go across a bridge downstream of the paper mill, and the river is yellow, or the river is blue, or the river is pink, because that's the color paper they're making that day. And it went down through and eventually got diluted. The president of Gulf Power was given this lecture about the fact that they were cracking down. You could only have so many parts per million of of uh, stack gas going up into the atmosphere. So if they wanted to make more electricity, they had to put in more fuel. And then they put more particulate emissions, various other carbon dioxide and various other byproducts up the stack. Great big tall stack, this power plant. One stack. A big stack. So when you was flying helicopters and you don't want to fly over that thing because huge updraft from that stack. So they, they said, what can we do to reduce the particulate emissions? We can either totally reduce the number of particles or we can increase the number of parts. Parts per million. So you got so many parts per million, if you put in more millions, it reduces the parts per million. So they bought two military surplus jet engines. And there's natural gas there. A limited supply, but not enough to run a power plant, but there is natural gas. So they put in a natural gas well, and they ran the jet engines on natural gas, which is very clean. It's a clean burning fuel, not like burning coal. And they put the natural gas, they put the exhaust from the jet engine into the bottom of the smokestack. And it blew more, even more volume up the smokestack. So now what you've done is you've reduced the parts per million by adding more millions. So you put in so many tons per hour, or per day, or per minute, or whatever you want to measure, put so many tons up the stack of particulates if you add millions of cubic feet of, of clean gas, you reduce the number of parts per million coming out the top of the stack. You haven't reduced the total parts at all going up, just the parts per million. But that's the way they wrote the law, and that's what they were complaining with. And he said, the solution to pollution is dilution. Never forget it. Never will get a big laugh. But it's true. If you dilute something you reduce the effect of it. And you test well water. You know, there's so many parts per million of something coming out of the well. And some people put in these all kinds of filters to uh, to filter out the bad stuff. And they've got uh, water softeners. It's a put, you can buy, put in your cellar. It, it reduces the particles of some parts of Maine. They have a... Uh, is a metal that they have that naturally occurring in rock when they drill and some of the metal leaches into the well and it it gives the the well water a funny taste it's not it's not poisonous or anything but they decided that so many parts per million of this stuff is uh is uh manganese manganese is the metal and it 
if you get the high enough concentration of manganese, it tastes funny. It's not harmful to you. It's just, uh, you know, it's not the clear main spring water taste that you like. So it can take the manganese off by putting in a reverse osmosis filter, or you can put in uh, uh, water softeners to treat the water. You put salt in there, and it attracts the manganese. There are people who make a good living at treating water in the state of Maine. And the environmentalists down in Augusta said that you can only have so much radon in your water. And they reduce in so much lead. So they keep reducing the amount. So they find a way to cope with this. And they say, oh, we've got to, well, now we've, instead of being 50 parts per billion, they want it to be five parts per billion. So you've got to take out 10 times as much out of the water somehow. And reverse osmosis filters will do that. You buy a reverse osmosis filter down at Sears, for example, for 300 bucks. Put it in your system, and you use that for your drinking water. Make your coffee, boil your vegetables, and uh, but you don't you don't run it in the shower. You don't flush the john with it. That's that's untreated water. The drinking water is uh, is filtered with a reverse osmosis filter. And you have to change those filters from time to time. It's an expense. Get in the real estate business, you learn all this stuff. You don't know it going in. You discover it along the way. Oh, well, we've got to do something about this. People have a water test on. The biggest problem that you run into is bacteria. Uh, you get bacteria in the water. There's two kinds of bacteria. There's non-coliform and coliform. Non-coliform is is uh, a fly crawled in underneath the well cap because it was it was warmer in there and hanging there, and the fly dies and falls in the water. Whoop, you get bacteria in the well. Super sensitive. You can find bacteria, but there's live bacteria and there's dead bacteria. So what you do is you put in a ultraviolet uh, treatment. It's just a tube with a light bulb that puts out ultraviolet light. It's like a tube going, a flowing water, water flowing through a clear gas cylinder with ultraviolet light shining on it. It kills any bugs going through there. By bugs, I mean micro, microscopic bugs, not ants fleas and stuff, just tiny little microbes. It kills them. Dead microbes won't hurt you. Live ones might. And and uh, coliform bacteria comes from animal waste, human waste. And uh, you get that in the, in the water in sufficient quantity, it'll make you sick. It gives you it's like the flu. It gives you diarrhea. It's a thoroughly disagreeable experience, and it turns out it came from your water. So you test for that. And if you suspect there's a, you know, a source, then uh, you know, you've got to treat the water. And that's not a problem. Years ago, farmers had two wells. They had a dug well or a spring for the animals, and they had a dug well or a spring for the house. And from the time a little toddler is old enough to lift the bucket 
you are told you do not put the barn bucket down the house well, and you do not put the house bucket in the barn well, ever, not ever. I mean, that is a capital offense. It would get you a whipping. You couldn't sit down for a week because now they've got to dig a new well. Those old farmers could not bleach a well. Now, if you've got bacteria in a well, you had a house that's vacant for two years, and somebody buys the house and they want to test the well, they find there's bacteria in the well. It's not the end of the world. You don't need to decide not to buy the house. You treat the well. So you go out, somebody goes out, sometimes me, and you take a whole gallon of bleach, not scented bleach, just plain old ordinary chlorine bleach, Clorox, or the store brand. And it's a half of 1% bleach in that jug. And it's quite a strong odor of, of chlorine. And you're just taking it, dump it down the well, the whole gallon. You run it through the system until you can smell bleach coming out the kitchen faucet, or in the bathroom faucet, or wherever. So you do this. And then you run, then you run the bleach uh, out. And once the bleach holder is gone, what you, the best thing to do is turn on the garden hose outdoors and, and run water out through the garden hose on the ground until it's clear there's no more bleach holder. And then you can take the water sample. And it will come back and say, no bacteria. But that means there's no live bacteria. So, and then you're good. The water test is done. When you're doing this, don't dump it in the septic tank. Don't don't run the water down the toilet. Don't run it in, down the kitchen sink. All that goes to your septic system. You don't want to dump a gallon of bleach in your septic system because it will kill the bugs in your septic system. Now you've got a problem with your septic system. Don't do that. You don't want to kill the bugs. You need happy bugs in the tank, in your septic tank. My parents lived in the same house for about 50 years, and they never had a septic problem because they never, they never harmed the septic system. You got happy bugs in the septic tank, and they break everything down. It's a natural process and water flows out of, into the leach field. In their case, they didn't have a leach field. They had one single pipe. That house was built on a vein of gravel, and water would flow out that pipe and go into the ground and go down and settle into the gravel, into the water table. And it, was, it worked fine for 50 years. They didn't have a code that said you had to have a leach field back then. They used to they had a guy, uh, this radio show that's very enjoyable. It runs from 8 to 10 on Saturday morning. It's called Hot and Cold by the WVOM. And you got Tom Gozi and Dick Hill. Dick Hill was a retired professor emeritus. I mean, this is a professor that, that still maintains the contact with the university. Even though he's retired, they use him as a historical resource. And they ask him questions about how do we explain this to students? The students have a hard time understanding this. He is just a, a wonderful old professor. 
and he lived to be in his 90s, I expect. He passed away last year, and it was a loss to the state of Maine, Dick Hill. I know where his son's camp is down on just the Dobson's Lake, Upper Dobson. Anyway, they had a uh, lower Dobson, excuse me. Anyway, Dick Hill was taught thermodynamics. Thermodynamics is is uh, the study of heat, man, man-made heat, insulation, all things to do with heat. And that's why they call the show hot and cold. Water wants to be ice. It takes a great deal of energy for water not to be ice. And we... Uh, and we've got ice warming right now as we speak, this freezing rain. Water wants to be ice. It takes a lot of heat to thaw the ice. And that's mostly provided by the sun. Directly or indirectly, this whole system that we live in, the environment, if you will, is controlled primarily by the sun. And it takes a lot of energy to keep our houses warm, no matter what fuel we use. I've got two sliding glass doors that nobody's ever going to go through on the second floor of my house. It's a great big window, five feet wide and six and a half feet tall, sliding glass doors. It keeps that whole, it's a solar heated room. My office in the house has a big picture window. Sun comes in there, wintertime warms the room. Solar heat. Passive solar. We don't do anything with the solar other than have it. And I know a guy that made a solar oven. Got an old refrigerator. Took the door off. Tilted it back 45 degrees. Painted the interior of the, refri- of the refrigerator black. Flat black. With ordinary, Barden's very finest flat black spray paint. 99 cents a can. And he put up two panels of paneling, uh, like regular paneling you put in the house. Covered them with, with aluminum foil so that you got the sun is hitting this aluminum foil reflecting into this refrigerator. And you put a piece of clear, clear plastic over the front of it so the sun would go in there. That thing would get up to 220, 230 degrees inside that refrigerator just from solar heat on a clear day. You know, cloudy, cloudy, cool day. You're not going to have a solar oven, but you could bake brownies in there and uh, oatmeal cookies. And you could break bake bread in there. You know, a lot of a lot of recipes will say 350 degrees for so many minutes. You know, it didn't get to 350, but it got to 225. And it would it would actually vaporize. You could put water in there, and it would get so hot that the water would reach the boiling point, and it would produce water vapor, and the whole inside of the thing would fill up with with water vapor and condensation. It was, so when you bake stuff, you didn't want to have a high moisture content. Solar oven. They use and they make solar ovens, and they cook bread in Africa with solar ovens. 
it's a, like a cottage industry making something to do this, where fuel is scarce and expensive. We can make productive advantage of our natural resources. We've got an organization called the Natural Resource Council of Maine, NRCM. And they don't want us to use our natural resources. <laughs> it's a, it's a, an anachronism that they just, they're just like all the other environmental groups, and they ultimately, if you get right down to it, their goal is no human use. No human use of our natural resources. They don't want you to build a dam in the river. The most the cleanest power we've got is water power. I mean, the water goes in, it goes through a turbine, goes back out again. Once in a while, a little fish gets inconvenienced and gets killed by the by the turbine. And the pieces of the fish, the two halves of the fish go downstream and a bigger fish grabs them and has them for lunch. Part of Mother Nature. There's a dam down in down in uh, Ellsworth, and the environmentalists want them to shut down and remove the dam because some of the young alewives, you know, the little alewives, inch and a half, two inches long, going downstream to the ocean, and eventually they'll come back to that river and spawn. I don't know how many years the cycle is for an alewife, but these adult alewives come up in the spring and there's they net them, and they have alewife wardens in some towns. It's a kind of an honorary position, like the tree warden in a town. You know, they got an old tree that's nearing the end of its life, and when do we cut it down? Do we cut off some of the branches so they don't break off and land on somebody's car going down the road? You know, the tree warden takes care of stuff like this. It's kind of an honorary position. It does require some common sense, and it's the same with the with the alewife warden. Some towns call them a pogey warden. The pogies are alewives. That's another name for them. So the environmentalists have found that some of the alewives go through this dam are bisected into two pieces. It kills them. Well, you've got jillions and jillions of these fish going down through there, and most of them make it. And Fish don't understand turbines. They've got a fish ladder there. They could go down the fish ladder if they wanted to, but the quickest route and the fastest flow to the ocean is through the turbine, so a lot of them go through the turbine. They're headed for the ocean. Instinctively, they want to be in the ocean. So it's an excuse, and they, they try to make, they show pictures of this fish that's been cut right in two. They think they're going to generate sympathy for the fish. Well, people that don't understand the greater scheme of things feel sorry for this fish that's been cut and We probably ought to take the dam out. It's not logical. It makes no sense to remove the dam that a lot of people worked hard to build, and they get, it's a very productive thing to have the dam there. They say, well, you know, we shouldn't be using this natural resource. Natural Resource Council says we shouldn't be using this natural resource. It's like up in northern Maine. Uh, oh, I forget the name of the town. It's one of the townships up there. 
kind of northwest of Caribou, where they've got a mountain that's full of rare earth minerals. It's great stuff. We don't have any tin mines in our country. There's no tin mined in the United States of America. I don't even know if there's any tin mined in North America. I don't know of any tin mined in Quebec, I mean up in Canada or Mexico. They have nickel up west of Timmins. There's a, a town where they, where they mine nickel. I don't know if there's any tin mixed up with that. Couldn't be much. We have to import our tin. But we have got great steel in our country. And they have the iron ore is mined up in the Masabi Range, in the western western part of Lake Superior. And they would haul the tin, uh, haul, the, <laughs> haul the iron ore down to blast furnaces in as far away as Pennsylvania. And there's a song that was sung by uh, Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen. And it's called uh, Youngstown. The famous, uh, I really like uh, some of, some of, I don't agree with Bruce Springsteen's uh, politics, but he's a good singer, good entertainer from the Jersey Shore. And he, uh, he had done a bunch of songs, some of which were considered to be protest songs. His song about Youngstown, Ohio, is, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> One of the most terrifying shows I ever did was what I tried to sing. I don't, I'm not a good singer. But it starts out here in northeast Ohio back in 1803. James and Daniel Heaton found the ore that was lying in Yellow Creek. It was iron ore in northeast Ohio up near near Lake Erie. And the reason the creek was yellow is that the iron would rust as it encountered the acids, including dioxin from rotting trees. It would rust the iron, and you get iron oxide, and it made a yellowish tint to the water. They call it Yellow Creek. And the average farmer up there, you know, didn't understand all of the chemistry involved, but that's neither do I for that matter. But they built a blast furnace and then they invented the continuous blast furnace. So they would put taconite, which is iron ore, coke, which is coal that's been heated up and they took the coal gas off and what's left behind is the coke, and limestone. And they would make pig iron. It was called pig iron simply because what ran out the bottom of the blast furnace went into clay troughs and convenient-sized ingots of iron that were shaped kind of like a pig, kind of half round, and looks like the, the back of a pig. And they weighed about as much as what two men could conveniently lift, and that was it. So they made 
they made cast iron. Ben Franklin, uh, of course, this was after Ben Franklin, but Ben Franklin made the Franklin stove out of cast iron. It was safer than fireplaces. You know, a lot of houses burned down because the fire from the fireplace uh, got out of control. So, everything was made out of cast iron back then. Lots of stuff. There was no aluminum. And copper was used, and they would tin plate the inside of the copper pot. And those were the expensive pots. My parents have, I've got a tea kettle that was made out of copper. Belonged to my grandmother. Was way back. That came from Sweden. We brought the coffee pot. Coffee's a big deal in Sweden. Swedes really like coffee. <laughs> One of the reasons they work so hard is that they, they stay awake from drinking all that coffee. Coffee is good for you. Coffee allows you to live longer. They've proven that. People that drink at least two cups of coffee a day live longer than people that don't drink coffee. Proven fact. Statistically, statistics are are accurate records, and you look at them and say, "Hmm, this is better than this." You may not know why. You don't know why drinking coffee is people who drink coffee live longer than people who don't drink coffee, but it's a fact, and it's a good thing. If you like coffee, this is your excuse, right there. No, the mainland man show. Drink coffee, you're going to live longer. I try to be helpful. <laughs> Lady call. I'm a deacon in the church. And the uh, minister, a few years ago, the minister asked me if I would serve as deacon. And I said, well, yep, my father was a deacon before me. And according to Titus and First Timothy, I'm qualified to be a deacon. And Minister was quite startled that I knew that, and I had, I just replied and said, "Well, according to Titus and First Timothy, I'm qualified to be a dean." He just, he was quite surprised that I had that right on the tip of my tongue. I didn't know he was going to ask me to be deacon, but I'm a deacon. In a small church, we only need one deacon. Some, some churches have a board of deacons. They get six or eight deacons, and they get then they. Just, some churches they have women be deacons, deaconesses. They have a de- board of deaconesses. The churches become big bureaucracies if, you, if things get out of hand. I think simple, simple and less complicated and less bureaucratic a church can be, the more effective it is. You create bureaucracies, you create problems. Even though that's not your intent, it's kind of it's the effect anyway. So, a lady called me up. Her husband was down at Togus. We brought down here. He had a medical problem. He's a veteran, 22 years in Marine Corps, retired. He'll be 80 in June. So he was taken down to down to Togus. And they asked me, they called me up and asked me if I would go down to Togus and pick him up. It's 124 miles to Togus. And I said, yep, I can do that today. They wanted him to leave that day. There's an awful lot of veterans down in Togus right now with the flu. He 
didn't have the flu. He didn't want to get to be the flu. He's 79 years old. He didn't want to catch the flu. They keep trying to keep the flu people separate from the other people, and it's kind of a it's a busy place down here in Togus right now. And they, Togus is one of the VA hospitals that does a good job taking care of the veterans in the state of Maine. I, I recommend them. Not everybody is happy with the medical care they receive, whether it's locally from the local family practitioner, or whether it's the local hospital, whether it's the big hospital, or whether it's the VA hospital. Some people we just can't satisfy despite your best efforts. And there were some VA hospitals across the country that give a bad name to the VA hospitals because they are just inefficient bureaucracies who have lost their way. Their primary concern is not the well-being of the veteran in some places. I think they do a pretty good job in Maine. When I went down picked him up, walked in the room there. He was happy to see me. He goes to my church where I go. And, and uh, well, he said, well, oh, one more thing. <laughs> Before I went down, I went over to his house, and I got some clothes for him, his shoes, and uh, his warm jacket, Marine Corps jacket, and his Marine Corps hat. Went down and <laughs> At Togus, they told us, well, you can go home now. Well, just one problem. He says, my clothes are at home. They took him to the hospital with a local ambulance. Togus came up with their ambulance, brought him down to Togus, and his clothes were at the house. I said, I got a recommendation for you. Pack a set of clothes, two sets of underwear, two pairs of socks, a shirt, pants, jacket, hat, umbrella, whatever, you know, have a package ready to go, so when you go to the hospital, take it with you so you can go home again. <laughs> oh, okay, good idea. I, uh, I learned this. Uh, my wife became hospitalized from time to time, and uh, we had a go bag in her vehicle. And we'd, uh, we'd uh, you know, if we needed to go to the hospital, uh, she was ready to to stay there. She had her own meds for diabetes and one thing or another. And she, uh, but sometimes she needed to go to the hospital. She had a hard time staying hydrated. And when you can't stay hydrated, you got to get an get an IV. I used to teach that, yeah, but they wouldn't give you your own IV kit to have at the house. They just that's they just don't agree with that. <laughs> but you adapt and do what you need to do. We cover a wide range of subjects today. Right, we started out with with the environmental industry decided that they could reduce emissions by putting a less efficient fuel in your vehicle. That's it. You know, less efficient fuel means you get fewer miles per gallon and you have to buy more fuel. Well, the petroleum industry didn't want to buy this 
competitive fuel and put it into their blended in. <clears throat> so they put as much as 10%. It's supposed to be 10% ethanol in gas. But part of the law that they got written said that once you reach 15 billion gallons of fuel in a year, you can stop putting in the ethanol. And in January, if you're producing fuel and selling fuel at a rate of more than 15 gall billion gallons per year, you could start letting some of that fuel out with no ethanol. And that's what I was buying at the airport. White planes don't burn, have any ethanol. It's too dangerous. You don't want the engine to fail in an airplane. The engine fails in your car going up the road because your fuel line rotted and the engine quits. You can coast to a stop and pull over the side of the road, put your four-way flashers on, and call a tow truck. If you're flying over the North Main Woods and your engine quits, you better hope there's a logging road that's wider than your wing spread. And you can put it down and coast to a stop and push the plane over to the side and you're going to have to come and take the wings off or do something, you know, to get the airplane working again. Hopefully you get this get it down all in one piece and you don't go in the woods. Somebody, uh, I got a message this week. Somebody was flying 15 years ago from Connecticut, headed up into Arista County. He's going up uh, the airport up in Caribou, Presque Isle or someplace. And he never made it. He, The last time they talked to him, he was in New Hampshire. He flew from Connecticut across Massachusetts into southern New Hampshire. His destination was up, I believe, Presque Isle. And he was going to fly pretty much a straight line right up across Maine to get there. Maine's got lots of small airports that that, that have gas and stuff. But they also have a whole lot of private landing strips in the state of Maine. There's lots of places you can put an airplane down if you have to. And down in Lower Maine, you're probably within 15 miles of an airport all over southern Maine. A strip where you could put it down if you had to. But he didn't make it. Now, he wasn't high and so high that he ran out of oxygen or anything. He may have had a medical issue. But there was never a mayday. He never called on the radio and said, I'm going down. This is where I am. There was no call. He just never made it to his destination. And he's that plane came down in Maine somewhere. And sooner or later, somebody is going to find it. There was a plane that flew from Europe, coming to the United States, and it was called the White Dove, and it went down in the 1920s somewhere in Washington County. Nobody has found that airplane. The wood is all rotted. And, but the engine, it's a radial engine. Somewhere in Washington County, there's a radial engine and some landing gear and some other parts. Maybe it's in a lake. Maybe it'll never be found. But if anybody finds a radial engine in Washington County, you know, you want to report it because a lot of people would like to find out where the White Dove went. It was a, it was a famous airplane. I don't know how many people who had two pilots and one. Well, I don't know about that. But this guy was flying a Cetabria. Cetabria is aerobatic spelled backwards. It's a nice 
explain. It looks kind of like a Piper Cub, and it's made to to be flown in aerobatics. A little more ant power than a Piper Cub. You can do loops and rolls and all kinds of stuff. It's a fun airplane. Very, very efficient airplane. It's got a good reputation. Don't know what happened. The guy might have died of a heart attack in the airplane. And just, you know, and it went down. Probably flew in big circles, lost altitude until it went into trees. Might have flown into the side of a steep hill. I don't know. Nobody knows. But they'd like to find it. So, this has been the Know the Mainland Man show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscious Domain. Brought to you today on Talk Show Radio Worldwide. You want to find it? There's about 260 of them, more than 260 of them, recorded for posterity on the TalkShoe Radio Network. It's TalkShoe, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E, and look for the Northern Mainland Man, and you'll see my smiling face there. So, be careful. This icy weather, it, uh, it's bad. Worst, world's worst weather, in my opinion, is freezing rain. Well, get out there. Be safe if you go out. This would be a good time to work on your fishing equipment today. Don't even go outside. Be safe. God bless.